morning once again. The current time is 9 a.m. on this Thursday, the 6th of August. And welcome to Community Pulse, your locally produced program on the COVID-19 pandemic here in mid-Missouri. As a reminder, you can catch Community Pulse live Monday through Thursdays at 9 a.m. right here on KOPN. All backdated episodes are then uploaded to our website, our Facebook feed, and you can also find them on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. On the topic of backdated episodes, last Thursday, the uh, 30th of July, host Elizabeth Alleman, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, was joined by a public health professional and certified midwife Sarah Davis to discuss some scholarly articles pertaining to COVID-19 transmission in children. Uh, Both are back this morning to discuss three more articles, including a relatively recent uh, scholarly study of a sleepaway camp in late June. Ladies, good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. So it was so interesting to me that you and I, Sarah, uh, last week, was it earlier this week or was it last week? I'm kind of getting a little disoriented. It was Um, last week. Yeah, just after we had done the program, I sent you a whole bunch of brand new (laughs) studies. (laughs) Right. I I think everyone is thinking about, what about the children and our school safe? And so I want to jump into that. I um, wanted to uh, talk a little bit about numbers. Um, We are here in Boone County. Uh, We had 23 new cases yesterday. So, you know, we're back down to average seven-day numbers being back in the 20s, where in the early, the the late of June, the the first weeks of July, we were looking more at average cases, average daily cases, more in the 40s, and sometimes the numbers were up in the 50s. And so, you know, there's been a question about whether our mask ordinance is working, and we have low enough numbers we can't really look at that here, but it looks like the trend is down since um, the mask ordinance has had a chance to work. Um, Around the state, we are still seeing high RT levels, uh, uh, which is the rate of transmission. Um, And that is a, a, oh, I'm so sorry about that, a statistical assessment of trying to see if we can um, uh, see an average of how many people are infected by any one case. And Missouri is number two in the nation with that, with our RT value of 1.17. Anything above one means we're going to have exponential growth. Hawaii is uh, right now beating us at 1.35. This is not a contest we want to win. So um, while our case numbers are not staggeringly high yet, um, what this tells us is statistically we predict that that's going to happen pretty soon. So we're at a we are at a risk of getting. COVID-19 by living in Missouri is higher than has been nation is nationwide, and that's for the first time since this uh, pandemic came to the United States. So, given that, <laughs> Sarah, thank you for joining us. We have to decide what to do about schools, and and all the people are really concerned about it. So, let's take a little careful dive into uh, one of these studies, and then I will give a summary of the other two. Uh, study. So the first was about a sleepaway camp in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Right. And this study was published, again, just after we talked last week. I got home and was doing my regular perusal of newspapers and recent research, and um, this popped right up. This comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 
and they publish something called the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, or the MMWR, and anybody who works in the public health field is familiar with this because it's a a real-time way for the CDC to get information out to public health practitioners and to everybody as it's coming in. So the MMWR um, deals with things that are happening right now. It's not that it doesn't also address long-term chronic health issues, but it's it's the fast-track way for the CDC to get information out as it's coming in. This was published on July 31st. This particular study is entitled SARS-CoV-2 Transmission and Infection Among Attendees of an Overnight Camp in Georgia, June 2020. And it has 20 authors. I will not read all of their names. They are all public health professionals, uh, many of them in the state of Georgia. This article looks specifically at one camp in Georgia. This is a sleepaway camp, uh, which had a total of 597 attendees including trainees, staff members, and campers. And as far as what happened, like the story of the camp, this camp began with training for 138 trainees and 120 regular staff on June 17th. So they had three days of training until June 20th, and then 138 of those people went home, and those were the initial trainees. On June 21st, 363 campers arrived, along with three more senior staff. On June 23rd, a teenage staff member left the camp after feeling sick, and she was symptomatic um, in that she felt sick, and she, I believe, reported that she had the chills, and we don't have any other information about her initial symptoms. On June 24th, that symptomatic staff member was tested and got a positive result that same day. And on that same day, then the camp started sending the campers home. And by June 27th, everybody had left the camp, all the campers and all the staff, and the camp was closed. So on June 25th, the Georgia Department of Public Health was notified that this was happening and they started an investigation. And as far as the investigation, the Georgia Department of Public Health had a list of camp attendees and, you know, the trainees and the staff members, and they matched it with people who had tests that were registered in their state electronic notifiable disease surveillance system. And I think that we may have talked about that before. You may have mentioned this before, Elizabeth, but that right now SARS-CoV-2 is what's called a reportable illness which means yep. that states have rules about what happens when there's a positive test, like who you have to report it to. So there are some things that you do not have to report. You know, you can go to the doctor and be sick with something, and they do not have to tell anybody that that's what's happened. But in the case of a SARS-CoV-2 positive test, um, that is reportable. So they were matching attendees with tests that were showing up in their system. Now, they had a total of 597 people that they were tracking, and that's because those were the Georgia residents. It turns out that there were 27 other camp attendees that they were not able to track for the study because they were not Georgia residents. So right. out of the 597, what's that? Can I just slow you down for just a minute? This is a yeah. problem 
a weakness of our system. And I'm not trying to say that I know what the perfect system would be. <laughs> but the weakness of the system is that you can only, as a public health person, you really, it's, there's this, the, we're drawing these boundaries around who is responsible for following your case. And if you don't live in a particular county or you don't live in a particular state or you don't, your permanent residence isn't the United States, then there, there can be a gap in who it is who's supposed to be following what's going on with you. Go ahead. Right. Right. And part of that is because in the United States, healthcare is very much a state's rights um, issue in every way. And so that includes public health. So different states have different health, different public health infrastructure. And you're right that if you cross some jurisdictional boundary, then sometimes it's very confusing about who should be tracking you (laughs) or if you will be tracked at all. Um, Yeah. So in this case, it turns out that there were 27 people who were not tracked because they in some way crossed a jurisdictional boundary. And, um, and so they are not part of this, this study. Out of the 597 people who are attendees who were a part of the study, uh, we have test results. So that would be positive or negative test results available for 344 of them. So that's 58% of the attendees that we have test results for. Out of those 344 people, we had 76% of them with positive tests. Overall, that's an attack rate of 44% of the original 597 people. And there's some really interesting pieces of this um, pieces of this puzzle when we break down the positives, and it's relevant when we're talking about what happens with schools or other large groups of children. When we look at the attack rate broken down by age, we see that 51% of the six to 10 year olds that we have results for um, were positive. We have 44% of the 11 to 17 year olds, 33% of the 18 to 21 year olds, and 29% of the 22 to 59 year olds. So the highest attack rate is among the six to 10 year olds um, as far as the children. The overall highest attack rate, if we looked at the campers versus the staff, though, was actually among the staff. Um, And that's because many of the staff are actually some of the older teenagers in that breakdown. And we think that that might also be because the staff were at the camp for a longer period of time, you know, that they arrived earlier and um, presumably had more exposure to each other. Yes. and this is this is my <laughs> my bias. Um, I always like to look very carefully at what the limitations are in any study. <laughs> so yes. I think this is actually a very good bias because no study is ever the be all end all. These are all just right. little pieces of the puzzle that are leading us to look at the next piece of the puzzle. So limitations for this particular study are that people could have been infected outside a camp. And one of the things that happened was that when they were figuring out how to look at this outbreak, they had to have a case definition. So not just a positive SARS-CoV-2 test, but it had to happen within a certain time frame for people who had attended the camp. They defined that as 
any camp attendee who had a positive PCR SARS-CoV specimen collected or reported to the Georgia Department of Public Health between the first day of camp, and that would be the 17th of June for the staff and the 21st for the campers, through 14 days after leaving the camp. So again, people could have been infected outside of camp. We don't know. Another pretty big issue is that this study is likely to be a pretty big underestimate of cases. So we have 344 of the 597 people that we could track tested, or we have test results for them. And a really large percent of those people, uh, 74% of the 136 cases where we have symptom data available, were symptomatic. And that doesn't fit with our previous understanding of the high numbers of asymptomatic cases in young people who are the preponderance of the cases in this camp attendee study. So it's very possible that the symptomatic attendees were just much more likely to be tested and that the more than 200 people that we don't have test results for, um, you know, those could be asymptomatic cases that we just don't know about. This report also doesn't examine further infections among family and contacts of camp attendees. Although, this is, this is really a helpful thing to know, the folks that did this study are pursuing further studies. So it's likely that in a future morbidity and mortality weekly report, we will know more about follow-up from family and contacts because the Georgia Department of Public Health was following up and the people that did this initial analysis are very interested to see what happens. But this particular study doesn't address that. Uh, We also don't know to what degree the individual camp attendees actually followed the prevention measures that the camp was asking them to take. And we really can't track the direction of spread and patient zero. When we're looking at an infection that is as common as SARS-CoV-2 is right now, um, it is really hard to find a patient zero because often there's more than one. And, you know, again, people could have been exposed before they came to camp. They could have gone home from camp and not been exposed, but on the way home they stopped somewhere and got exposed, and then they still had a positive result within 14 days. You know, it's it's really Exactly. I think in general with communicable illnesses, people often want to know who they got it from. <laughs> yeah. And and can I just say, um, my uh, curiosity about that has waned a long time ago, in part because I just never get a satisfying answer. Um, right. Because, okay, so some people spent some time together, and then afterwards, one of them was sick. Oh, okay. <laughs> it gets hard right. to know. Yeah. yeah. Right. Most it's of very, us have very more than one way that we're contact. We are exposed. Right. So when we have something that is a really rare communicable illness and it is spread in very well-defined ways, it's much easier to figure that out. So, for example, if we're talking about um, like HIV, um, for example, you know, and someone has had one sexual partner that had HIV, um, you know, those are much clearer patterns of transmission, um, but yeah, something like SARS-CoV-2 is, 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 can really be a puzzle. Yes. So when I look at this study, I think there are a couple important things to note. And one of them is 
what did the camp try to do to prevent the spread? Because they were trying to prevent the spread of SARS-CoV-2 at camp. Um, you know, we can look at this and think, oh, well, they weren't doing anything. But that's not true. They were actually taking some measures. The Georgia Department of Public Health published camp guidelines shortly before this camp started. And the camp implemented many of them. And that included things like mostly having children stick to the same cohort. So that would be having children be in groups that don't interact a lot with other groups of children. And we don't know exactly how careful um, the children or the camp staff were keeping the cohorts apart, but they did try to do that. They spent a lot of time outside and the adults at the camp did wear masks, although the children did not. Um, so the, the camp was paying attention to those things, and they also were very um, focused on cleaning surfaces. So there were a lot of details in the Georgia Department of Public Health prevention guidelines about surface cleaning, and the camp did those very carefully, according to their report. Um, what the camp did not do um, was have everyone wear masks, that the, the campers did not wear masks. And they did stay in cabins, and the cabins did not necessarily have the doors and windows open at night. And we don't know if that's because they have air conditioning or, you know, if there was some other reason that they didn't do that, um, if that just wasn't feasible in their buildings. That would be like if we said, okay, well, we all have to leave our doors and windows open at night. Yeah, and we might if it's really nice out. But if it's, you know, 78 degrees at midnight and really humid, we might not. <laughs> not if we have right, air conditioning. We're talking about Georgia. It was likely 88 degrees at midnight. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and the, you know, what if the screens <laughs> on the windows are not right. intact or, you know, like, right. or right. if some of the campers or the staff member have significant respiratory allergies, you know, there right. are... Right. There, there are, are there reasons. are very good reasons to not do that, too. Right. Um, right. But it's helpful to, to look at what the camp did and did not do, because what that yeah. is, is information for the rest of us about what might or might not work in other settings. So some takeaways are that large groups of children's children in settings where they do things like chant and sing, which the campers did. Um, and spend time inside, whether that's dining halls or cabins, um, are actually really, really good ways to spread the virus. Okay. And, and yeah, and again, we don't know how many people showed up and were SARS-CoV-2 positive. You know, it could have been that there were a lot of people. It's possible that in a setting where only one person is SARS-CoV-2 positive, you know, that out of the 600 people, you might end up with fewer infections. But, you know, maybe if 20 people show up positive, <laughs> you know, you get a lot more spread. We don't know. Um, but but we do know that this particular kind of environment seems to be really good at spreading SARS-CoV-2. Right. And it, it comes on the heels of um, us having talked about how it appeared that children under the age of 10 maybe were less likely to spread this virus, and this is showing that, no, children as young as five are likely spreading the virus as well, or obtain, getting, right. uh, acquiring the virus. Right, and, they are um, definitely getting have, it, yes. 
Yeah, I have a pet peeve about the way this study is being uh, quoted, and that is that it's talking about how, oh, this demonstrates that children of all ages can spread this infection, and there were no participants under the age of six. Right, and it's also true that we do not actually know who is spreading the infection. What we know we is who was positive out of the people that we tested. So again, any study is only one little piece of the puzzle, and I think it's very helpful to consider that these are just little chunks of information, you know, right. it's, and they're just little little guideposts for us as we consider what to do. But you're right that the youngest campers were six. And so we have no idea from this particular study anyway what happens with those younger children. And, again, we, had, we don't actually know who is spreading it at the camp. Um, we only know who was positive out of right. the people we that we really tested. Know. We don't, we, you know, even when we listen to the story, we never know for sure what it was that was the moment at which transmission happened and the direction right. of transmission. We can get some presumptions about that. But it's not like we can watch the virus jump from one person's nose to the other and say, aha, it was at that one. It was because you shouted or you coughed or you sang. Right, right. It's like, it, no, we, we could have, we just can't see that. So um, do you have other things you want to say about that, or shall we talk briefly about these other two um, publications? Yeah, I think you can go ahead and cover the other two. That, that's my That's my summary. Okay. So the other one was uh, uh, age-related differences in nasopharyngeal severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2 levels in patients with mild to moderate coronavirus disease in 2019. This was published on July 30th, 2020 in JAMA Pediatrics, um, uh, MD-PhD studies, uh, authors, uh, in a peer-reviewed, art, a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, so what they were just looking at was um, if we swab people's noses that we believe to be to have the illness, um, how much of the virus is there? So they were mm-hmm. looking at quantitative measures. And they specifically excluded uh, people with severe disease because they are that is associated with um, with higher viral shedding. And um that's not really relevant to what we're trying to do in the community because those people were on oxygen support. So that, that is relevant for people who are taking care of folks in the hospital. But, you know, the kind of questions we're asking of like, who can go to summer camp and who can go to school, that, that wouldn't be all that helpful. So between March 23rd and April 27th, uh, they, um, they did – uh, a second test, it sounds like, on nasopharyngeal swabs collected at various inpatient, outpatient, emergency department, and drive-through testing sites at a pediatric tertiary medical center in Chicago, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all individuals uh, aged younger than one month to 65 years. So we are really looking at, uh, unless you're thinking about that first month as a, as a consideration, we're looking at the entire span of, uh, of childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, final court, cohort included 145 patients, so not a really big number, with mild right. to moderate illness within one week of symptom onset. And they were looking at children under the five years, children aged 15 to 7 and 17, and adults 18 to 65. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that young children had significantly um, 
higher um, uh, viral nucleic acid in their upper respiratory tract. Darn it. I was so hoping. (laughs) Darn it. So we have the data. Um, And that uh, other children, older children and adults have similar amounts. So we kind of hope that it, yeah. So uh, our analysis suggests that children younger than five years with mild to moderate COVID-19, COVID-19 have high amounts of SARS-CoV-2 viral RNA in their nasopharynx compared with older children and adults. Our study is limited, to get limitation of studies, to detection of viral nucleic acid rather than infectious virus. So this is that whole conversation we've been having about, we found the IR- RNA on uh, surfaces, so does that mean that I, you know, three days after somebody sneezed, does that mean I can get it from surfaces like that? And we're beginning, or we found viral RNA in stool. Do we have to worry about bathroom hygiene more than just standard bathroom hygiene? And the answer is we should always be concerned about bathroom hygiene. Right. <laughs> but it does not appear that the viral RNA we're finding on surfaces and in stool is a major way that people get this. We think that the viruses are rapidly degrading, um, and we don't know, um, really. This is a marker, and it's not been 100% calibrated for if it's really correlated with infectiousness. But we think it's, it's our best measure right now. I mean, that you can do in a lab. So it's a, love, it's a legitimate measure to be thinking about. So that was kind of disappointing that well, it turns out maybe these young kids are not, are not um, spared. Well, and I think an interesting thing about that study, too, is I believe that one of the authors noticed that um, when she was looking at lab reports in, the, in children, that the number of cycles, like when you're running a PCR, then the number of cycles needed to get the positive was actually lower in children. And that was what made her want to want to pay attention to that, which is an interesting, an interesting thought and process that led her to examine that phenomenon and see if that was a piece of information that was going to be helpful. And this is why a lot more information comes out as case numbers go up, because more curious people are noticing trends. So on... Um, Earlier this week, we had uh, Dr. Tim O'Connor on talking about this correlation. We've noticed that we've had a marked decrease, a measurable noticeable decrease in very early premature births. And the way that was noticed is that somebody who was in charge of ordering the uh, breast milk fortifier that these early babies need noticed that they were ordering less of it. Yes, he thought so, there was something wrong. He had gone away on vacation and come back, and they had not ordered any, and he thought that they had made a terrible mistake. Right. It was panic. Like, what? Right. We're going to be running out of this. Yeah. Right. So um, anyway, so curious people noticing t- t- trends and then following up with uh, further data. So here's another one. So this is the, la- the third study was uh, contact tracing during phase one of the COVID-19 pandemic in the province of Trento, Italy finding the recommendations. So they did contact tracing in Trento, Italy when, when the numbers were high. And um, they used a contract tracing website, which I'm not sure I quite understand how that works, but um, 
that that's how they got their data, and that was confirmed by people actually contacting these people and talking. Um, and what they noticed was that they, so they were looking at uh, cases and then their contacts and tracing them. One of the sobering things was they said contact tracing was performed by public health visitors, nurses, and doctors, and after case numbers overwhelmed capacities by other health workers such as safety inspectors, controllers, or administrative personnel who were repurposed as contact tracers. So it is, again, a limitation of the study that many of the people who were doing the contact tracing when things got, when numbers got big, were people without a case of experience doing this work. I am sure their intentions were great, and I'm sure they did the very best training they could. Um, and I'd uh, like to point out that that's also true in the United States at this time, it, all over is, the United States, is, including in is, Missouri, yes. that it, administrative personnel and other time. people are being yes. trained to do that. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. That is a, no. a very positive thing that we are trying to have more contact tracing. But yes. I'm just clarifying that we are also doing that very thing. <laughs> Of course we are, and we should be. I, it's just sad that we are overwhelming our system. Yeah. Um, so the other one of the other limitations of the study is that um, some people were identified as cases based on a positive test, and other people were identified as a case if they had close contact with a case and then developed symptoms. So we then just presumed they were positive. And this is a thing that we do with other illnesses so, um, with, say, strep throat. I often diagnose one person with strep throat with a test, and then when the household contact comes up with a sore throat and a fever, I um, call them strep throat and treat them as well. Anyway, to, to get this, what they discovered was that early in the situation, most people um, seemed, the transmission seemed to be from uh, 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 workplace. Mm -hmm. And then once there was a lockdown, um, much of the contacts, the cases, the con po contacts who turned positive were household contacts of cases. And what we saw was that um, people of all ages seemed to be um, able to, their the contacts of cases of all ages turned positive. So 0 to 14 ages their uh, secondary attack rate was 8.4%, 25 to 29% was 9.2%. So um, the question was if, if, you know, the question is sort of, well, are children going to bring this home from school to their household context? And the answer is, yeah, not as much as older people, but yeah, it's not, it's not that much different. So sadly, mm -hmm. we are not going to be protected by this um, demographic uh, trend. Right. And I, we have we have run over time, so I want to say thank you so much to Sarah Davis for joining us, um, a public health expert and certified professional midwife. And I um, want to remind people that you can you should wash your hands, wear your mask, uh, take your vitamin D, gen, cultivate a cheerful confidence in your ability to fight a virus, and uh, we will talk to you on Monday. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Alleman. It was so engrossing uh, to listen to you both that I lost track of time myself. Um, <laughs> that will, of course, conclude today's edition of Community Pulse, and it will indeed uh, put us on a break for the weekend. We shall return Monday at 9 a.m. with a new episode. Thanks very much to Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, the host of today's program, also the host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. A very, very special thanks to Sarah Davis, public health professional who was so kind to join us for the second consecutive week to talk about recent scholarship. We will post links to said scholarship on our Facebook page where we will also upload this episode. You can find it at kopn.org, also on uh, <coughs> Apple and Spotify podcasts. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to the coronavirus. Please leave us a message at 573-874-1139, email us at gm at kopn.org, or find us on Facebook or Instagram. Coming up next, we have an abridged version of background briefing. Please stay safe. Please stay informed. And to flagrantly plagiarize Dr. Alleman, please cultivate a cheerful confidence that your body has the ability to fight an infection. We will speak with you next week. Thank you so much for joining us on your listener-supported and volunteer-operated community radio station.